perhaps because they are with us for so long, offer comfort when we need it most, and are, let's face it, adorable. I remember every nightlight I've ever owned. The first one, a baby blue plastic. I have a feeling it was handed down to me, plucked from a drawer and plugged in when I was a baby, perhaps having lit the floors and walls of my father's own childhood room. The second one, I still have it somewhere, was flat plastic in the shape of Spider-Man's head and shoulders, a hero to chase the gloom. The glow from that one was always too dim to really make a difference, and now its light still shines, although intermittently, a kind of soft, barely there. As a grown person, I relied on the always-on lights of power strips and appliances throughout the apartments, or I've lived in cities where the street lights never let anything succumb to total darkness. The one we have now was purchased to light the hallway when Kid Pepsi came along. It's round and plastic and weirdly spiky, and has a sensor that keeps it off during the daytime. Its light is of the bluish kind that signals our modern era, defiantly not anything resembling the flames or candlelight once used by myopic cave persons and colonial types grasping at plaster walls after midnight. I bought a salt lamp nightlight, and it burned out after a week, so thanks, Etsy. That one just rolls around in the drawer, too heavy and too lame to be much good, but I hope it's still absorbing bad energy, which is the only thing that's keeping me from throwing it out. I remember these things because they are my forever anchors, the thing that gets me through the literal dark hours and the metaphorical empty ones, little beacons close to the ground, and when you find one that performs as it should without question, a sentinel against the unknown, allowing you to live more and live more joyfully without worry, you hold on to it. It sears its image in your mind. This week we talk about finding that joy inside, that little spark that ends up consuming our beings and giving us purpose, lighting a path before us and pushing us ever forward. So find a socket and plug this episode in as we guide you through the deep night. Hello, friends, it's me, Dale Seaver, and I'm so pleased to be your host, guide, and guru through this next hour of regrets and revelations we call the deep night, our little dark hallway, isn't it? We come to you tonight, as we always do, from the foul banks of the Gowanus. I just finished watching The Haunting of Bly Manor on Netflix, and it made me wonder how much spookier and, frankly, dirtier the show would be if it were set near the Gowanus. I mean, being an American au pair in a haunted manor is rough, but imagine if every morning, in addition to creepy doll stuff, you had to slip into a full hazmat suit and scrub the sludge and Whole Foods runoff from the floors. Lady of the Lake is scary, but soiled floors of the Guanee, bone-chilling. I guess one big lesson from our first few months on the commune here in our building is that communes are filthy. All I need is for you to not leave your bike in the hall, Indigo, and maybe tone down the Palo Santo for, like, a day. 
Second lesson is it's important to have at least a working understanding of boundaries. I was actually thinking about boundaries a fair amount in my conversation this week with Los Angeles-based performer, writer, and comedian Christina Catherine Martinez. Christina is someone who has been melting boundaries beyond recognition and creating something new. Now, it's no secret that the mixing of performance, art, and comedy is a long-standing interest of mine, dating back to my days when I'd host shows in my garage in Providence, Rhode Island. So it's always thrilling to lock in with someone who has made a career of it and who shares a passion for both doing the thing and having a critical eye for it. Christina was just named one of Vulture's 20 Comics to Watch in 2020 and has been the recipient of an Andy Warhol Foundation Arts Writers Grant. She's both an art critic and a performer who has had work featured on FX as well as in Art Forum. She was also a writer for The Eric Andre Show and does a number of thrilling and funny and unexpected shows around Los Angeles. Ultimately, what are boundaries but things to cross, move, expand and redefine as needed. I think that comes across in Christina's work and in her person, quite frankly, as you'll hear in this conversation. A fine one and an emotional one, as it turns out. So let's go to that conversation now with Christina Catherine Martinez. Uh Uh-oh. I forgot I had a cookie in my purse. Okay. All right. That's always a pleasant discovery. (laughs) I was about to launch into it, but then when I heard the big exclamation, I thought, oh, something's happening there. Sorry. We're having having fun. That's all right. We are. Christina Catherine Martinez, welcome (laughs) to the deep night. Thank you for having me. (laughs) It's great to have you and uh, your large cookie on the show. That's not a euphemism. That's no. I actually just found a large cookie in my purse before we got on here. Look at it. Boy, that's handsome. <laughs> it's, it's huge. It's a that's... rye chocolate chip cookie. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it looks like it really spreads out there in this <laughs> on the pan. <laughs> That's good. Well, of course, eating is always encouraged on the I'm show. I'm sorry. That's <laughs> a bad idea. <laughs> well, let me know. That's okay. Uh, and what's that? A purple drink? Oh, or this, is it just coffee? This is blue jasmine green tea. Boy, I miss LA. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm love living you, out there. It's a, When's the last time you were in LA? Oh, uh, it's probably been about... Uh, Maybe a year, but maybe nine months, something. I've lost track of time, to be honest. But uh, yes, maybe December of last year. Okay, but you haven't lived here in many years. In many years, that's true. Yeah, about uh, 12 or so. Wow, okay. Well, I I was born and raised here, and it's, I don't know, right now in my immediate area, in my immediate life, it's pretty, it's pretty, pretty good. Oh, well, good. It looks lovely. <laughs> You've got some nice sun, some nice snacks. But uh, <laughs> even so, given that uh, you're comfortable in your living situation, let me ask you this, uh, because I'm asking uh, of everybody that's on the show this season, how do you feel about communes, and would you be interested in joining mine? Um, I, I have, I'm pretty open to the idea of a commune, and if you started one, it would have to de- – Location, location, location. That's what I always say when it comes to communes, cults, various fringe ad hoc communities of any kind. But I'm I'm very interested. I don't know if you have any like a PDF or any sort of brochures or flyers, but 
Yeah, my wife Galinda can send you all the paperwork, so that'll yeah. be that'll be great. Yeah, I'm, I'm 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 very you know I'm not opposed to you know starting my own family, but I'm also really excited by any kind of alternatives to the bourgeois nuclear family unit. You know, I'll. Why do I need to have a baby if I can just raise your baby? You know, terrific. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. That's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm glad you're so enthusiastic because <laughs> you're the first person who has been. <laughs> really? Gosh, who are these? Uh, who are these, who are these young Republicans you're interviewing uh, that don't want to join your commune? Clearly, clearly. But you are a part of a comedy collective. That's not really so different, is it? No, I mean, which I'm part of several comedy collectives. I'm That's dipping, what I mean. I'm dipping, I'm dipping in different. Uh, yeah, I'm part of a collective called Highland Park TV, which is like a public access style studio space. Um I'm part of a clown group that we're loosely associ associated with the Lyric Hyperion and we make TV and weird shows. We're working on a socially distanced physical comedy clown show that takes place in an abandoned zoo in Griffith Park. Yes. Oh, oh yeah. You like that, don't you? I heard that in your voice. <laughs> well, now I was going to ask you about it because uh, so often uh, we only know each other uh, sometimes uh, through social media or this, mm -hmm. and that's the case this time. And so when I saw Clown Zoo pop up in the feed, I thought, well, my gosh, what's that? Well, so that, that, that group, this group of, I think there's eight or nine of us, incredibly talented, beautiful, sexy, devastating brave, vulnerable clowns that uh, we all came together through the Lyric Hyperion, um, which is owned by uh, Phil Burgers. And so we came together under him. He put together our group and we worked on various live shows at the theater that turned into um, working on television. And we've done a couple rounds of short films for FX, for Cake, which is their late night short form block. And now, while a lot of things are on hold, the sort of clowns, we kind of independently decided to work on a show that could be live and socially distanced um, and have that sort of built into the actual format of the show. Mm -hmm. So it does. So we're all doing it. It's silent, uh, physical, mat. We're trying to make it a mask show. Um, and Natalie Palomides, who's in the group, is giving us sort of a loose primer on the discipline of mask work, um, which is new for me. But uh, that's pretty much what it is. So every Wednesday, and we've gotten like a nice little crowd, and, and the space is so open. So the stage is basically these old, used to be like cages where they kept monkeys, I think. And they're just kind of these weird caves that we pop in and out of. And, and, then, and who was the connection to the abandoned zoo? Um, no one. It's kind of guerrilla style, but there's just a, it's now, cause now at Griffith park, the, the old zoo is just a picnic area. Oh, but I see. Okay. But there's just these beautiful sort of empty cage cave situations. And so we're building a show around that. Um, so the crowd is far away, you know, just out on the lawn in a picnic area. We're all wearing, we're all wearing masks and then we have, you know, COVID masks under our masks. So it kind of, so it works. Um, yes. Yeah. So uh, a couple of questions on this. Uh, first of all, just back to the collective idea to begin with. Uh, and this relates to my earlier point. It, when you, when you all get together, is there a, a group dinner or something? And, and what would be the dish that you're bringing? Oh gosh, we actually did have a group dinner. I okay. mean, are you, are you being hypothetical or are you just like, do you want to know what I brought to the group dinner? 
I, I want to know what your dish is in any situation that's potluck. Oh, okay. I think my most successful uh, potluck situation was spaghetti squash oh. with. I'm sorry. I wish. I wish. I. I wish I had the. I wish I could think of something dumb and funny that wasn't true, but no honesty is appreciated. <laughs> spaghetti squash. It's very easy to make in large quantities. Yeah. It's a wonderful substitute because it's uh, it's delicious. It's just as delicious as pasta or anything, and it's just as easy to eat. But it's vegan and it's gluten free, so you can you know. And us, you know, us commune types, we're around a lot of people with different That's dietary right. restrictions. That's right. That's so right. I think anything you could make with a with a, a spaghetti squash base okay, is going to be it's going to be a hit. Is the thing for sure. For sure, mm -hmm. and uh, this time of year too. Oh, it's great! Oh, give me. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you get it now. Uh, and then with the with the clown situation. Mm -hmm. uh, so so uh, you all are identifying as clown. Of course, there's a great history in uh, of clowning and mm -hmm. learning how to be a physical comedian. I'm thinking, of course, of Jacques Lecoq and that whole uh, uh, school over there in uh, France. But uh, uh, is that? Ha do you now identify as a clown? I guess is the main is the first question. Wow, I I do. And I do not have tr as deep training as many clowns do. I came to it through uh, Phil Berger's, who trained under Philippe Goyer, which is a different clown school uh, in France. Yes. Um, so Phil spent much of his formative comedy years studying and practicing the sacred art of clown all over Europe. And then when he came to L.A., he started teaching clown classes in that style out of Lyric Hyperion, which was um, huge for me because I had just been doing stand-up. Right. And the, um, I don't think there's, there's idiot work, which there's, there's an idiot school, which is uh, called the Idiot Workshop, which has been running for a long time. I'm out of Los Angeles, but there's really not a whole lot of um, comedy opportunities to really study clown in Los Angeles. So that was, um, a big deal for me. And I took those, I was taking clown classes with Phil specifically for about two or three years before um, this group started. But yeah, yeah. Okay. I would say it, it's definitely related to that specific tradition. Yes, yes. And are you somebody, and I want to get into a little bit of the backstory here in a second, but uh, are you somebody that uh, enjoys getting those kind of basics, those foundational pieces to it, to understand the root of where these things come from? I'm eating. Um, yeah, now I do. When I first started doing comedy, I didn't want to because I was an art critic before I did comedy. Yeah. And for me, comedy was a way to try and get out of my head and 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 was sort of like a like a break from the gravitas of criticism. So I, it was pretty messy. And it's like, I didn't want to know anything. I just wanted to get on stage, throw shit at the wall just do it, you know, without overthinking it. Cause also being in my head is what sort of like trips me up when it comes to comedy. Yeah. And I think I needed that for a few years just to loosen up a little bit. Sometimes but, you just want to be like a big dog barking, don't you? Yeah, I do. I, yeah, I actually do. Yeah. <laughs> just let <Anyway>. it out. <laughs> um, that's a, that's a small dog barking. Oh, a small but, dog. Well, it, it presents <laughs> larger. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> I've already lost uh, track. Oh, and then, but at some point I did, um, it was important to me 
I, I, I hit this wall where, you know, I can't, if I'm going to make a real go out of this, I need to get some discipline, get some, just tighten it up. Yeah. And I think I needed those few years of just sort of loosening up and, and getting in front of an audience. But now what's real, what's really fun is I, I love analyzing comedy and talking about comedy. And what's really fun for me is um, what's most productive is not to have so many ideas in my head when I try something, but it's really fun and productive to analyze or talk about something after the fact. So yes. with this, with this clown show and with a lot of the clown stuff we've done, it's, um, you know, we, we, we do a bunch of experiments, we throw a bunch of shit at the wall, and then we sit down afterward and kind of debrief and deconstruct. And we're like, why did this work? Why didn't this work? And um, that's, that's, I love, I love that, even though it's really painful sometimes. Yeah. Yes. And I, I think probably something that not everybody realizes, although, you know, maybe within comedy circles it's well talked about, but the fact that so much of this is so exacting. I mean, you talk about physical comedy. Uh, there, there's a reason why it's exact. You know, people can get hurt. Uh, it, it has to be uh, precise in the movements, uh, even from Charlie Chaplin or any of that kind of stuff, setting up all the shots to make it look exactly the way it's supposed to look. There's a real uh, almost science to it. Um, so it's important to know. I remember, uh, back to those foundational things, I spent a little time out there with... Um, Bob Wilson, you know mm -hmm. that fella, and uh, he said, uh, you know, what you ha have to do is really respect the stage and understand, you know, when you're walking out there, that there are, you know, gods beneath the stage, and you must respect them. And walk in that kind of way and know how to breathe and know how to stand. Just the basics uh, of being a, an entertainer uh, was uh, hugely impactful to me, and something I still, you know, think about a little bit when you go yeah. out there. I can feel the the authority in your breathing just through just through this squad cast recording. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but what's what's nice is I feel like I yeah, I am learning these that I've, you know, been doing comedy sort of wildly on my own for a while and then I have the opportunity to learn these really beautiful fundamental, you know, just techniques, I guess, of, of just being a performer and entertainer. And it's amazing what the clown work did for my stand-up, you know, which is obviously totally different, but oh my gosh, after, you know, doing like, when you do something really abstract and physical and totally lame and stupid, then after that, like, oh, now I just have to like talk into a microphone or you, really? Are you kidding me? Okay. <laughs> Oh, well, maybe we can add a little structure to this because I realize we've kind of uh, barreled through a little bit, <laughs> uh, and that, that's just me. Uh, uh, but uh, the, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is exactly this kind of thing that we're talking about. So it's all fine, uh, mm -hmm. but it's because we kind of both occupy and are interested in this sort of center of the Venn diagram between performance art and comedy, if you want to set it up that way. And so I wondered how you kind of came to that, because as I understand it, you said you were an art critic, you're working in a gallery. Uh, uh, what are we talking about there? Culver City, La Cienega, DTLA? DTLA, Boyle Heights, okay. Arts District, yeah. Okay. You know what's funny is I, I, I consider that the tradition of performance art is like so sacred, it's hard to think of myself as part of it. For me, the Venn diagram was, um, you know, the overlap between being a critic and an entertainer. Huh, okay. Because I... I because I came from art art writing and not necessarily performing 
considering myself an artist. That's something I've had to like allow myself to take on in the past few years. But it was, uh, I guess the same thing, like it didn't happen consciously. And I'm trying to look back and think about, well, what is it that I'm doing? And like, what makes it work and not work? Um, and for me, because stand-up is so verbal, uh, and you are making observations about the world around you that actually seemed like a pretty seamless, you know, crossover, you know, that I could, I'm like, oh, this is just what I do, which is talking about the world and the stuff that I think about, but I can have more fun doing it. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Having a critical uh, point of view, uh, Mm -hmm. having a perspective that's clear and defined. uh, And this in case, in this case, just talking, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, putting it out there. And then as I started taking the clown classes, I guess I just got bored. I sort of maybe, it sounds really, might sound really lame or or woo-woo, but I really felt like I had this uh, ineffable, I don't know, I had this clown spirit in me that was like trying to find its community because even before I found clown, I was experimenting a lot with, yeah, just doing weird stuff and um, at open mics and at, clubs and totally conventional comedy spaces but i just i just wanted to have fun and i'm like i i know there's more that we can do with this space or just thinking about what do i want to see on stage and then almost in a reverse way other people started telling me about like oh that thing you know when you pulled like flowers out of your vag you know at the virgil really reminded me of this carolee schneemann piece where she like pulls the scroll out or someone actually said to me that like, oh, your comedy reminds me of Andrea Frazier, which is like a huge compliment. So I would say that 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 performance art education actually came later because I spent most of my art career focusing on painting uh, and sculpture. And it wasn't until I started performing and other people would point out to me that there's, you know, even unconsciously that there's these echoes and these, um, that there's precedence for what I was doing even if, even though I was working in isolation and that actually um, was very encouraging. Yes. That's a, it's a wonderful and uh, humbling moment uh, to, to be uh, reminded that others have come before you and that there's this other, that people have worked in a way that you could seek out and further understand what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 it was a relief. I thought it wasn't as, <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to, you know, like the burden of genius was lifted. Cause I'm just like, you know, <laughs> Gosh, am I the am I the only woman? Am I really the I'm the only woman in the world who's been doing these things? And can I handle that responsibility? And they're like, no, actually, women have been doing shit like this since the seventies, just in different contexts. And I'm like, cool, great, <laughs> yes, yes, great. I'm not special. Perfect. <laughs> and uh, when we consider these sacred texts uh, uh, about performance art and that kind of thing, uh, I know for me, one of the things that was really a gateway and introduction and very uh, uh, grounding for me was to come across Rosalie Goldberg's performance art. Uh, oh, I don't I don't know about her. There you go. You can educate me. Oh, my. Uh, well, you, you got to. You got to pick up this book uh, uh, because that is, uh, I think, one of the foundational texts in terms of going okay. back from, from Dada all the way through uh, 
the present day. Uh, and I encourage you to look at the older version, the older edition of that book. There's a new one that's kind of glossy and, and a little bit more up to date maybe. But the original mm-hmm. one is, is magnificent because it's so uh, – uh, it's just little black and white pictures. And, of course, Rosalie's talking about everything. She runs the Performa Festival in New oh, York City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know she wrote a book. She did. Oh and it's a great one. And it's it's one that you can, you, you have to, of course, when I was studying, you know, it was before uh, computers. Uh, but uh, <laughs> you, There was you, just no computers ever. Oh, this is the, uh, the Thames and Hudson series performance art. Is that, is that uh, her book? I, I, don't, I, I can't speak to that part of it. But, uh, okay, okay. All I know is I got the original one of those things in a class, and it opened it up to all this great stuff. And uh, you look back and you think, gosh, uh, one, uh, just evocative, amazing for the time. And two, I don't know if it was funny. Not that that was the goal of every <laughs> everything. Uh, but you look at some of those things and think, well, that was probably just insufferable. You know, I've, I've been reading a lot of David Robbins and Pablo Hilguera, who are both really brilliant very funny artists but that's the hard part is i i find their writing is so incisive and brilliant in the way it sort of teases apart humor and art and humor in art but god it's not fun to read (laughs) it's interesting to me because it's very nerdy it's basically like reading a like a like a car you know mechanics manual (laughs) right but uh i also think about for my work as a critic you know, how do I make, how do I bring the, the humor and the, the clown and the lightness and the fun into my writing? You know, I think yeah. about that the other way as well. And I wish that uh, some of those uh, art folks <laughs> would bring it into the actual art because sometimes you go to a show, well, this, you know, somebody who's always included in a show that's like art and humor or art and laughter or whatever. Very, very difficult. And I very find, not funny. Yeah, and that's why I, I, I honestly I get a little touchy around the the idea of or when people ask me about, oh, you know, you and the art and the comedy, and I'm like, it is, <laughs> but gosh, if I have to choose, like I'm gonna choose comedy. I wanna I'm gonna choose to be funny over, you know, because failure, you can always make that funny, but you know, making a point, sometimes you just have to make a point. Um yeah, I, I, I find as as a straightforward entertainer, as a comedian, like I do just want to to be funny and to try to have as many people see my work as possible. And I think to to consciously do the the humor in art, it's it's hard. I think there's a lot of art that's about humor and so little of it is actually funny. Yeah. I think that's okay. And I, and I just don't know who that's interesting to. It's interesting to me. It's like <laughs> it's interesting to me as like a weird gearhead comedy nerd art person. But like, when's the last time a work of art made you laugh? You know, I was trying to think about that before yeah, we, uh, we, we, can't, we got we together. Can't. I mean, maybe there were some pieces in the Jack Smith show that uh, were entertaining. Uh, but often it's just you come across something, it could be a painting, and just think, oh, gosh, that's, that's brought me a lot of joy. But very rarely am I doubling over, and especially if it's called out as being this person, of course, employs comedy in their work. And uh, I don't see I, it. I, I hate that. I would, I would, I'm sorry. I would, I would die. I would die if someone was like, if someone had to present me by saying like, oh, Christina Catherine Martinez incorporates humor into her work. 
I would. <laughs> I'm like, you just, you just fucking ruined it. You ruined the whole thing. Right. right. So at least like, you know, I, so I, in that sense, I've been very unapologetic in that, you know, I'm pursuing that, you know, my whole background in myself and, and the art and everything that I think about, you know, it's going to be there no matter what. Yeah. You know, yeah. but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make comedy here. And yes. you, can, you can call it art if you think it's that good. But I just want to be funny. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Um, uh, and uh, part of, uh, of course, the tension that exists between these two worlds of performance, art, comedy, if they're as distinct as worlds, let's just go with that. But okay. it's the fact that um, there's a little bit of uh, toying with the audience. And I think the audience relationship is different, especially when it comes to like theater and performance art. But then with performance art and comedy, you have maybe a little bit more leeway. But uh, it seems to be that this uh, collapsing of the boundaries, uh, messing with it is something that you're interested in. Uh, uh, it's certainly one of the things that I tend to avoid because I'm a Libra and I don't like conflict and I don't see very well. So uh, it's hard for me to wade out into the audience and, and kind of mess with them. But uh, tell me about how it, how fascinated you are by that uh, and playing with that tension. Oh, it's, I mean, I'm messy. And <laughs> I, I found that even before I became a performer, I had this, I, I carried a lot of this tension in my personal relationships. And then now it's finding its way into my work and, I, I, I literally talked about this to my therapist, like what kind of game am I playing with myself here? And is this good for me just as a person? I don't know. But I think because when I started doing, um, because I started doing comedy as a person who was active in the art world, I very quickly got, you know, was able to do shows, comedy shows in art spaces. I think even as a comedian, you just think about context so much. And for me, you know, it's very hard for me. It's very hard for me to do the the conventional comedian thing of like, this is my act, and I deliver it at no matter where I go, and you know exactly what you're going to get. Because even as a comedian, you know, any comedian can tell you about the difference in, in energy between like a bar show versus a polished comedy club versus you know someone's backyard versus whatever. And you know, good comedians are always going to adapt. And so for me, who are just having to perform in wildly different contexts, I just love, you know, comedy is subverting expectations. So it doesn't matter where I am. I just want to like have a good time and hopefully catch, hopefully surprise people a little bit. Sure. And I, yeah. I just want to have a good time. And a lot of it has to do with like, for me, performance writ large is the, you know, it's this like death match between the glamour of being on stage and the humiliation of being a person and they're kind of duking it out and the, and it's rigged, but you don't know who's winning. And, you know, and really the real enemy is like, it's context. It's hard to explain, but I'm just like, you kind of, you see where you're at and you get a feel for what's expected of you. And then you decide how much of that you want to meet versus subvert. God, that sounds so dorky. It never comes out like that in the moment. Ah, well, <laughs> I'm right there with you. I'm thinking uh, that, you know, so much of uh, kind of the trick of comedy is having the audience trust you. Uh, and uh, you can play with that. But if they don't trust you or don't feel comfortable right off the bat, uh, it becomes a little bit 
tough. Yeah. <laughs> to do it. And so if you're somebody who's addressing the context and kind of they can see that you're a little bit on their side or at least acknowledging the situation in the room, then you can really go with it and play with it. Yeah. I'll give you concrete examples in that, um, you know, if I'm doing, you know, and I've done lots of shows in galleries and some at like art fairs and stuff like that. And if I'm doing, and maybe this is a little antagonistic and ultimately not in my best interest. Who knows? But if basically, if I'm doing a show that's uh, sort of arty or in an art context, and I feel this impl- implicit, implied expectations that I'm going to do something more performancey or strange or weird, that's when I want to just go up there and do like a straightforward uh, stand-up set. Right. And that's actually also harder, which is maybe a weird, like self-flagellating Calvinistic thing that I have. But, and then what's really fun is then, you know, being in a context like, oh, I'm the fucking, can I say the F word? You know, being at like the comedy store in La Jolla or, you know, a, a bar show in Koreatown where no one gives a shit about this stuff. That's when I want to like, oh, maybe I can... Like maybe if they have a sound system, I can do this like beautiful nunchuck ballet sequence in there or, you know, right. It's, it's just whatever's not going to be expected for the space right, is, right. is what's really fun. And, you know, sometimes I just I, I, I was I think I, I commend myself for at least having the discipline that there's a lot of I had a lot of different types of acts in my back pocket. Yeah. And some a lot of it is straightforward stand-up some of it's pretty abstract and then i can sort sort of like see how i feel you know the night of the show or given what's going on or what's expected of me i also just i I also feel like i'm shooting myself in the foot by just saying like i love surprises because then people are gonna (laughs) people are gonna expect surprises and then the whole structure comes down this is such a weird thing that we're doing this this craft of performance you know what i've been watching a lot of recently which has been I've been watching a lot of uh, Pina Bausch documentaries. Oh, it's the best. I, I didn't. I mean, I, I I knew her name. That oh, okay, she's a cool. She's a you know strange dancer. But like I said, you know, my background is not in performance art at all. Like I didn't even know who Bruce Lee Goldberg was. Like yeah, embar- embarrassing. Um, That's okay. It's all right. My spe- my specialty was painting uh, and sculpture, yeah. and so I'm like, I knew the name when I started seeing her work. I was, I'm like, oh, this is. Like it's to me, that's funny. A lot of her work, I think, is really uh, hilarious. Yes, and yep. in an absolutely heartbreaking way. And I'm like, oh, she's a clown, and middle-aged <laughs> people are really sexy, and she's very good at showing that because her work is so much about just eh, like bringing out these like base uh, human emo- expressing these base human emotions that I think you have to be at least like forty to really, you know, get. Um, not that I'm 40, so I don't know, but we'll get yeah, there. Who, who knows? Uh, I hope to one day see that age. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, 20, you're 26? Is that uh, You know, right? ish, ish. Okay, uh, yeah. Uh, but the, yeah, that peanut documentary, if people haven't seen it, they should. There's a sequence that's on the train that is just magnificent. Well, there's where, two. Sh- Chantal Ackerman did one uh, in the... I don't even want to say because I'm going to get the date totally wrong. Yeah. Uh, and then are you talking about the Vim Vendors one? Yeah, the more recent one. Yeah, that one's yeah, that one is gorgeous. It's gorgeous. I know. Yeah. Yeah. And seeing yeah. that that company in person also 
Uh, phenomenal. Just phenomenal. People should definitely do it. So Um, I, I I know that clown is a very specific discipline and philosophy, but I also have this, maybe it's a California thing. I also have this Lucy sort of, Thing where I really think, oh, I can't believe I'm going to say this. I really feel like it's like a spirit and you can see it and it's present. And it can be present in like any discipline. It just has that like, I don't know, like little clown thing in it. And I'm just like, and you just recognize it immediately. And I was like, oh, Pina and that whole company, they're very serious, but it's like, they have it. They're clowns. Sorry. Yes. No, I, you can see it in like, you know, my barista. I'm just like, oh, you're a clown. Like, <laughs> people people just have it it's really it's really it's a really beautiful interesting thing to to recognize it's a little inner joy isn't it it's a little Uh it's a little holding on to a a little secret while also acknowledging what's happening i'm gonna cry (laughs) (laughs) and isn't that what isn't that oh my god isn't that what like you really have to do maybe it's been a while for you as like a retail worker or like a food service worker you have to like Find the inner joy in that, like, you're holding on to a little secret. Yeah. But you know what's going on. Ugh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep. I, I remember, remember uh, my remember. retail days doing those things. Yeah, sure. You remember. Yep. Yep. You had to uh, <laughs> fi- find the space for that. But you had to find the sp- <laughs> Spiritually, you had to find the air, the, the little pocket of air in this suffocating atmosphere of, like, you know, um, late capitalist emotional labor. Especially when you're working on commission. <laughs> yeah. It's true. It's, it's true. true. Can you tell I worked retail for like 10 years before I even got into writing? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I've, been, I've been there. Okay. Don't tell me. I'm, don't call me a snob. I've been in the trenches. Okay. I yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. You deserve yeah. a little uh, expressing that joy. I yeah. deserve a I deserve a little. Yeah. Just, let, yeah. Just, just let me pop one off every so often. <laughs> uh, that's uh, <laughs> that's great that you've come to it and that it's found you or you found it. Uh, that's really uh, exceptional and good. Thank um, you. Uh, and I know that uh, performance art in L.A. does kind of occupy this strange place within, even within the art world, not just L.A. And mm-hmm. uh, sometimes... Uh, uh, it can be more free and strange because it doesn't look like anything else and it doesn't look like a recognizable form where comedy is a recognizable form and maybe provides some more access to bring people into it. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm, uh, one yeah. of the f- forms that I was thinking about, and of course you, you've probably covered this, but uh, because you had a, a talk show for a while and talk show is one of those sort of essential forms. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and I, and I do it sometimes on my, I do a, a an Instagram live version uh, intermittently, but that was like, you know, unwittingly like my own performance art boot camp, um, <laughs> specifically because I had no agenda other than I wanted, it was an excuse to talk to people that I wanted to get to know better, to get to know people and that it happened to spread across, you know, maybe comedy, maybe art was, didn't fucking matter. I'm and that like by the time um, by the time like lockdown happened and I wasn't able to do a live talk show anymore, like I had gotten to a point where I was just like, I'm the fucking ringleader. I'm the affect wrangler. Like I don't care how many different types of wacky ass guests, like I can I can hold this show together. And I did, you know, and I have like um 
And that's really all it is. There was no theme other than that, like, I want these people in the same room and I want to show them to other people. And the only format was uh, there was, you know, that the guests would come out, do their act, do a bit, do whatever they wanted. And then they sit down and talk with me for a few minutes and they could, they could, you know, the interview portion could be like very straightforward. We could just chat or if they wanted to make it like an extension of their performance, they could do it in character uh, some people, um, I don't know if, you know, brilliant comedian, actor, Josh Fadum, you know, and the fun thing is that's where, and, and then the interview portion is, this also very performative thing, which is where the term aesthetical relations comes from, which is obviously a pun on relational aesthetics, Right. Um, is that it's this sort of performative, con- it's this connection that's sort of real but it's also something that you're performing for another audience right you're participating in this dynamic but it's also for the benefit of this other spectator that's kind of not participating but when you have real trust with someone you're interviewing then it's like oh well we can make this whatever we want and like exploring that on stage either with a performer that maybe i know very well and we're friends so we're having fun or like this is someone i don't know but i can tell that they're a little trickster so like we're gonna mess with that um, and like I said, Josh Fadum, I asked him what he wanted to do. He said, I don't want to, um, I don't want to perform at all. I'm just going to come out and we'll talk the whole time. And I was like, okay. But then our talk turned into its own improvised performance that just sort of devolved into gibberish. And then he didn't know, this is my favorite part about just like performance art and surprises. It was his birthday. So then I had, I arranged for a birthday cake to be delivered in the middle of our interview without him knowing. And I had, but I told, but I instructed the guy who brought in the cake, uh, ate shit in the middle of the stage before he could hand it off <laughs> on, on purpose, you know, yes, like yes. classic pratfall, classic pratfall. And, yep. um, no, I, and that was all I had planned knowing that. And that's the, that's the trust that I had with Josh at the time, just knowing that we are friends and just my trust in his like brilliance as a performer. I'm just like, this is what I'm gonna, this is the situation I'm gonna set up and we'll see what he does. Guy comes in, falls on the cake. And then Josh immediately starts like playing with him. And they set up this weird scenario where like, and the guy starts crying and then Josh feels bad and tries to give him money out of his wallet. And then Josh develops his like own pratfall routine where he's trying to pick up the cake and he keeps falling. And it was so people could not believe that it wasn't planned. And I'm just like, to me, that's was the height of when like that show and what I do is like a performer and a host work where I'm like, I'm going to, I can do just enough planning to set up a situation where this person is going to give this person opportunity to like really shine or really have fun or really discover something. Yes. Um, and that is like, I'm probably going to cry again. That is just like the height of, I think what for me, aesthetical relations as a performance talk show experience, you know, that's when it really worked, you know, yes. and then, it, and it brought a lot of people together. I mean, that show had like Henry Taylor, who's one of my favorite painters in the world was sitting on the floor because there was no, you know, at Lyric Hyperion, cause there's no seats sitting on the floor, watching me interview Eddie Pepitone. And I'm just like, <laughs> this for me specifically could not be any more perfect. And I, I just, 
and I hope everyone else in the room also had a good time. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, what a what a gift, and I, I wonder what it does mean for you to to be operating from that place of strength while also being able to express the joy. And, you know, I mean that's a that's a tremendous place to be. Thank you. I mean, it's it's hard. It sucks. If it was easy, more people would do it. People are like, oh, you're so vulnerable. And I'm like, I wish I wasn't. <laughs> this is torture. <laughs> this is absolute torture talking to you about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the goal. <laughs> uh, well, we have fun. We have fun. We, we do. And even, I mean... I've had those moments are, are rare. Uh, <laughs> sometimes, as I just age, I get a little bit more confident in it, and I feel more competent, and not as much of an imposter. But still, uh, there are times uh, where it does kind of all converge, and it feels like, oh gosh, did it, and, and yet I tend to remember the less, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, well received moments. But that's but, that's uh, yes. the yeah, that's the tension of it, because there's also times when you know you're. As any creative endeavor, there's times where I'm like, oh man, this this thing just came together in the moment that I could not, even though I, I tried to prepare, but I could have not have predicted this or I could not have planned this. But there's also moments in like, just to get the freaking, the fucking thing done is feels awkward and you have to get into that analytical mind. And I've discovered this more as I'm like having to, you know, now that we're in lockdown, just doing more video stuff and writing and writing a little bit for television that it's very, you know, math is never funny, but comedy can be very mathematical. And just, I'm like, okay, how do I, how do I, but you know, how do we button up this sketch or like, what's the subversion or what's the, what's the, you know, thing in this video. And I mean, when, when the clown group, when we were doing these FX, uh, the first round of FX short films, Yes, that's you the know, two pink doors. Is that what it's yeah, called? Yeah, two, two pink doors. It's on Hulu, so you just Google two pink doors Hulu, and all of all of our the first six short films are all there. You know, basically, our, we had we basically had to reverse our process because we would we would put together these hour long shows through improvising. Yeah, and then now we kind of have to like, it was very improvisational process, but we kind of had to like you know really get something done and then film it. So we just. And they look so fun. They look great and they look very fun and fancy free, but there were just like long nights of like sitting in a circle and yelling about, you know, does this make sense? Or like, no, that subversion is like too absurd and then it's gonna undo this or like, well, that doesn't make sense with the reality that we've set up here, but like subverting the reality is what's gonna make the button funny, but you buttoned it too tight and I'm like, there's no way this is going to be funny because we're too mad and we're too analytical, but that's kind of how it needed to get done sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't it's... know. I don't know. It's both. <laughs> uh, yeah. And it's tricky because of the timing. I mean, I think that one of the things I miss most of all of live performing is timing. Being... <laughs> that was it. Yeah. is taking the pause and having a, just a moment. Oh yeah, I've been and watching. And just enjoying it, you know. I've been trying to write, actually, which is also something I've never done before. Really, like write down my material. None of it was written down. I'm like Mark Maron. It was just kind of all in my head. Oh yeah, work it out on stage. But That's as I have to do it, as I'm preparing to like film like a 
a half hour I'm looking at old tapes and transcribing them and trying to just, you know, get a, get a written, get my stand up material down in writing. But um, yeah, sometimes it's hard. It's weird seeing it on, 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 on film, but it was so good in the moment. I was like, wow, I just stood there for like 10 seconds and took a long drink of water. And I was like, and it's almost makes me nervous watching it, but clearly like it was clearly, I was just so relaxed in the moment that I had the, the confidence to do that. And it was, and you know, the audience, and they were fine. Maybe they needed a break too, to get some water. Just like, it's something that you can't, that stillness is really hard to do in general, anywhere but the stage. Even think about the way sketch and funny videos and things that go viral, they tend to have that like really rapid fire editing where there's just no breathing room. Yeah. Um, which works. I think it's kind of a thing you have to do if you're going to make a short video that people will actually watch. But that's, that's one of the tragedies of like not having um, stage performance right now is like, ugh, there's so much room to breathe when you, when you have a live audience there yeah. and you can, you can both breathe, you know? Well, hopefully we can all find a little joy, a little stillness, a little uh, confidence and strength uh, as we go forward, and you're going to have the special that you're taping uh, soon. Are you allowed to say anything about that, or uh, you? Oh yeah, I mean, it's, it's a totally. You know, I'm doing it totally independently or on my own. So, if it doesn't, there's a there's a scenario in which, like, I don't know, maybe the battery dies and it just doesn't work at all. But <laughs> end of November, you know, and I'll see. Well, I'll see what can be done with it when it's done. But end of November, I'm going to have a week in this gallery space. I'm going to use that time to try and shoot this ex experimental kind of a, you know, solo quarantine comedy special thing. Yeah. And we'll, we'll edit it together and see, see what happens after that. Yeah. That's great. Well, it's terribly Thank you. exciting. Thank um, you. I know we could talk uh, for a great deal longer than just this, but uh, not today. <laughs> no, nope. not that today, Satan. <laughs> that's our time um but i, I so have enjoyed uh, talking to you uh, this afternoon and uh, thank you for spending some time with me oh my gosh thank you for having me this is so god damn delightful <laughs> oh good good i'm not glad. just because not just because i found a cookie in my purse right before we started yeah, didn't hurt though did it did, did not hurt <laughs> <laughs> i'll have to send those in advance um uh, <laughs> for the next time <laughs> but uh, and we'll follow up with you on the commune but really this is great good luck with the special and uh, we'll talk to you soon okay thank you so much bye okay bye there we go find your joy let the clown out Pursue every avenue and live to the fullest and keep working at it. All things I felt keenly in that conversation. My thanks to Christina for joining me. Look for her online on Instagram and catch her in residence at Human Resources, a very fine and unusual space for performance in L.A., right there in Chinatown. There's a good spot for hot wings nearby, so you might as well drop in. Well, that does it for us this week. I thank you for listening once again. And remember that although this night is ending, a bright new day is just ahead.
Deep Night with Dale is produced and performed by James Bewley. Season theme song by Mariam Cadus of Space Moth. Season podcast icon by Philippa Beleza. Incidental music heard throughout the program by the talented roster at Howler Hills Farm in Ohio. Remember to rate and review the program on Apple Podcasts or tune in and stream the show on Spotify, SoundCloud, Pandora, or Stitcher, wherever you find fine audio content. To see any of our live shows or other short videos, visit our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Radio, and follow us on Instagram at DaleSeaver is the handle. Thanks again for listening, and remember this season to keep your portals open and at a safe distance. <laughs>